If Davy Burns starts running lads with the ball, there's absolutely no chance of me catching him. I don't think if I drove a Fiesta after him, I'd catch him. <laughs> the Football Pod with Paddy and Andy. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA podcast feed now. Welcome everybody to the third episode of the podcast where we scratch below the surface of coaching and look to find ways that we can all do it better. Again, this podcast is here for two reasons. The first is to try and create some thoughtful debate for coaches at a time where we all have some extra time in our hands and, and can't be on the field or in the gym with our players. And the second reason is, is probably the most important and it's to try and raise some much needed funds for Temple Street Children's Hospital. For new listeners, it would be great if you could find the link below and donate anything small that you have spare. Uh, and for those of you who are, who are here before, I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who has donated so far and, and to everybody who continues to share the podcast and, and help spread the word on social media or WhatsApp. I'm delighted to say that today's guest is a former Connacht, Leinster and Ireland rugby player. Bernard Jackman will be well known to most of you and here he's kind enough to take us through his journey playing the game, the highs and lows of professional sport and how they have shaped his own coaching philosophy moving forward. He also gives some really fascinating insights from other elite and high level environments that I think coaches from every sport can take something from. I hope you enjoy and if you do, be sure to like it and review it and let me know what you think afterwards. Okay. So Bernard, thanks a million for for joining us. Sir. I appreciate your time, especially in the in the busy week with Six Nations coming up. Yeah, looking forward to it. Two days now to uh, uh, to Ireland, Wales, or, or sorry, on Sunday, and um, yeah, England, England, Scotland on, on Saturday. Uh, it's always a special time of year. It's diff- It's a lot different at the moment. Obviously, normally I'd have my WhatsApp group would be hopping. Where are we meeting uh, Saturday night in Cardiff for for pints or whatever? But. Uh, yeah, let's look at it. We're so lucky to have professional sport, um, elite sport going on this lockdown. And obviously, um, you know, pro rugby still going. I know the, G- the GA is on hold at the moment. But uh, yeah, I was sick of watching rewatches, rematches, um, yeah. to be honest, the, the last yeah. time. It's nice to have something to talk about. It is. It is. Even the I, I find myself now, I, I I support Man United, but, you know, I'd be one yeah. of those casual peoples. But now I'm, I'm every time it's a game, now I'm glued to it every night. And it's just great that pro sport, as you said, is going on and giving us something for people that are interested in sport, uh, some bit of an outlet, you know? Yeah, um, Absolutely. But I just want to maybe just for people, I know most people probably are, but maybe just for people that aren't, uh, could you just give a very, very brief kind of introduction or, or breakdown of where you came in terms of your playing and then onto your onto your, your coaching career as well? Yeah. So I was in the first batch of, of professional players to ever get contracted in Ireland. So I think in 96, there was a vote um, after the 95 World Cup um which South Africa won. Uh, there was a big push for the game to go professional. The, uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, got involved. There was talk about a breakaway group, etc. But the unions got back control and managed to contract um, all the major players in, in, in each country. And um, in actual fact, the IRFU voted against professional rugby, but at a world level, it, it was voted in. So um, yeah. they went into it kicking and, and screaming. Um, and the first year they offered five contracts uh, to each province full-time and then the rest were part-time contracts. So the, the first contract, the full-time contract was 25,000 a year and um, would have been punts, I think. Um, yeah. And then the part-time contract was 7,500, but you got match fees. You got around approximately 500 a match and then 500 win bonus. So I was, I was, I was in college. I was, uh, I was studying international marketing in Japanese. So I thought it was Christmas. And uh, <laughs> the challenge was I was supposed to go to Japan 
So uh, for my third year and do six months in college over there, six months work experience, and then come back and do one more year. And Warren Gatland, when he offered me the contract, said, look, you know, you obviously can't go to Japan. You have to be in Ireland. Um, and he was a school teacher himself. And he said, look, no one knows if professional rugby is going to take off or not. Like we could be back amateur in a year's time. So you could be one of only 20 players in Ireland to have been professional. Um, and likewise, if you go to Japan, the batch of players who get those contracts are going to be miles ahead of you when you come mm. back. So mm. he let me transfer into business studies. So I, I joined Connacht, transferred into business studies in DCU, and I, I studied virtually, um, which which we all know <laughs> now. And uh, I ended up getting my degree uh, there. Uh, Warren went to Ireland. Um, at the end of those two years, I had a little look around, and, and I had an agent, and he found me a deal in Sail Sharks in in. Um, in Manchester, and I know you're a United fan. I am as well. And uh, so I went to Manchester for two years, played for Sale Sharks, came back to Ireland because I wanted to get capped for Ireland. And at that stage, all the guys who went away were coming back, and had failed a medical actually, failed a medical to play uh, to get a contract with RFU. So I went back and got a real job. I worked for a company called AstraZeneca as a sales rep for a year. Got back after about four months. Went, went playing for my club Clontarf um, in AIL performed pretty well. And at the end of that year, I had an offer from Leinster and Connacht and Eddie Sullivan was the Irish coach. He sent me, he said, look, I want you to go to Connacht. Shane Burmers in Leinster, who's the Irish hooker. Mm. And uh, went back to Connacht for two more years. Then got to move to Leinster, uh, which is my home province. Uh, spent five years there. And then uh, that's my playing career. Uh, won a Heineken Cup with Leinster 2009. Won a Magnus League 2008. Won a Challenge Cup at Sale 2004. It was part of the Grand Slam. Uh, in 2009 and then I went coaching I went to Grenoble for five years and then I was coaching and uh, the Dragons in Wales and uh, now I'm coaching my old school Newbridge and coaching a club called Bechtel so yeah I've, it's, that, that's that's the the long the long answer to a short question yeah it's mad when you say 96 there it's actually it, it, it seemed like it's a lot longer but that's, that's maybe that's just a sign we're getting old but it doesn't seem like it's that long ago that the game turned professional no and uh, to be honest we probably didn't really turn professional properly for about five or six years. I mean, mm. um, and you know what it was? We actually overtrained. Um, so effectively, you had these coaches who came in and suddenly they had you full time. And I think the sense was that um, if you're not flogging them, um, mm. you're not making use of them being full time. Yeah. Our balance was completely wrong. We didn't have any recovery. Uh, we were overtrained. And it wasn't that, that you know, you're, you're, you're familiar now with the, uh, you know, um, the different data points that can give you some good feedback around where players are at. So, um, yeah, we got absolutely flogged. And not a, and we weren't, our body wasn't ready for it either because we went way too quick um, right. from a two-night-a-week kind of regime to basically four times a day. And uh, <laughs> so now now it's much more exact and, and the sport yeah. incentive. And also, when guys come into a professional contracts at 20, their training age is, is already very high mm-hmm. from from the, the development squads and the academies, et cetera. So there's not as big a jump, but no, it was crazy. But look, it was great. It was great times because, as I said, we, we still had the amateur ethos, still had the amateur attitude to a certain extent, but we're, we're able to do it for a living. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it's a great, that's a great, it's great to have been there at the genesis of it, I suppose, and and, and in that in that area where it went from amateur to professional. That's interesting. Just maybe 
Uh, obviously, the, the emphasis on this then, Shane, is, is our um, Bernard is, is about that is, is about that kind of coaching element, and uh, I'm just interested, maybe of, of of people or how you fell in love with the game, kind of first day, or, or yeah, or was it so, your parents or where where did that come no, from? No, so basically, yeah, so I was um, I'm I'm a son of a cattle dealer, um, third generation cattle dealer, eldest in my family, um, so as a, a seven, eight, nine year old, I was out in the yard I was at Marts I was down in Kerry actually a lot my dad used to buy in Kerry three days a week um, I used to go with him in the lorry we'd go to Tralee on a Monday um, uh, uh, they stole our cattle line on a Wednesday they stole on a Thursday and yeah. down there trying, and like I used to get to buy a few cattle like uh, obviously my dad would tell me what to pay or whatever uh, so I was really interested in that and um, no one in my family or my extended family had ever gone to, to college in actual fact none of, none of my uncles from my dad's side had had even like finished school or whatever. So um, uh, because of work and things like that. Mm. So effectively, my mum and dad had a chat and they said, look, at, um, he's obviously got the love for for the, for the cattle and, and livestock and, and dealing. Um, if he stays around here, the likelihood is he won't finish school, you know, and we don't really want to have him have no choice to mm. like him to have a choice whether he goes into the business or whether he does something else. So they decided to send me to boarding school and give me that choice. And the, the deal we had was that I do the leaving cert. And if I didn't want to do anything more, that was perfect. I came home. Right. Um, but at least by doing the leaving cert and being in an environment where, you know, you had three hours study a night uh, without choice, uh, uh, compulsory study that you, you had some chance of actually doing well in exams. So, yeah. and then, then they, we had a choice. We had a nerd chat and they said, look, if you want to go to university, great. And if you, after university, if you don't want to use your, your degree, I want to come home. There's no problem. So um, that's where I played rugby. Basically, I played Gaelic until I went until I went to, to school and loved Gaelic. I'm, I live in the Wicklow Carlow border, and my club competition was in Wicklow. So um, I, I was playing a lot of Gaelic football. Uh, loved it. The only sport you could play in 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 school, Newbridge College, from September to March was was rugby. You could only play soccer or Gaelic after March. So. Um, I joined, joined, played that, loved it, uh, but wasn't a star by any manner means. That, not that I ever was, but um, like I didn't. Play, I played. I was on the first team. I captained the team and stuff like that. But I wasn't that. I wasn't in Leinster schools and things like that. So when I left school, my ambition was to go to the, to university and and maybe play all Ireland league, which is for a club team, and just enjoy it. And uh, but I started to get a bit better. Brent Pope for the former T RT commentator. So I joined Lansdowne out of school. And uh, was doing quite well and ended up playing under 20s and playing, getting a game for the first that year. And I actually played under 20s, third Bs, third As, thirds, seconds, firsts. Because it, it, um, in this kind of in February, March, the, the junior league, so basically the third As, third Bs might play on a Tuesday night, right? So right. Have like, they'd have 10 or 12 old fellas um, and they'd want to bring in a couple of young lads to yeah, run. Yeah. So, but the deal was you played in the Tuesday night for them and then they bought you a few pints in the bar and like I was a student. <laughs> so I ended up playing for any, pretty much every team. At the end of the season, I got a taste of the first team and I was delighted and I said, okay, wow, I can play this level. Um, but the, the, the way the captaincy works, they named their captain for the following year in, in, in season. So the captain that was being nominated for the following year, a very good player actually, way better than me, a guy called Mark McDermott who ended up playing for Munster in Ireland A, was made captain. I was like, well, I'm not going to play. I'm never, I'm never going to play first if he's the captain. And uh, so I was playing a seconds match one Sunday and a guy called Brent Pope um, was coaching Clontarf and he came to watch a winger that he was trying to sign. And I had a good game. And afterwards he, he came up to me and said, oh, look, you know, I need a hooker as well. And uh, I said, well, I'm studying DCU. 
which is closer to Clontarf than Lansdowne. And um, I said, is there a chance to play in the first? He said, look, you'll, you'll, you'll play in the first if you train hard or whatever. So I said, okay. So I went there to Clontarf and uh, he was a brilliant influence to me. I mean, he used to keep me back after training and work on my lines of running, work on my tackling, work on my uh, ball carrying. And, and to be honest, he was the one who rang Warren Gatland when Gatland got a Connacht job and said, look, there's a hooker here. Um, if he gets a crack, he'll, he'll do well for you. So I owe him a lot. I mean, it's just pure coincidence that he was at that match that day. I never would have thought yeah. of John Tarf, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just a bit of a bit of good luck, I suppose, in, in yeah. that sense. Yeah. And and from from there, then, like the the transition once you eventually finished playing into the coaching side of it, where like what grabbed you about about that side of the game? You know, the coaching as opposed to the playing. Yeah. Well, look, I saw the influence Popey had on on me and the team. I had a very good coach in school, uh, an ex-army guy called Paddy Butler, who, who definitely influenced me. So I decided pretty early that I wanted a coach when I when I finished playing. And I had a very good coach in under 14 as well, um, a guy called Pele Kyo. And uh, he influenced me and influenced the team in a really positive way around, you know, just little messages around being consistent, around preparation, around teamwork and things like that. So I really, you know, I, I, I bought into... I bought into influential coaches and um, felt that you know they gave me good lessons for for play for rugby and um, and 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 for life. So I, I kind of decided I wanted to coach pretty early. So when I was twenty three, when I was playing for Connacht on my second stint, um, my local club Tullow Rugby Club um, rang me and said, "Look, the club aren't going very well. Uh, would you come back and and coach us?" And like these are this is a men's team now. When I'm twenty three, now I was professional. Uh, so I, I'd been in, like, I had good experience, but I was still way younger than yeah. a lot of the players. So um, I said, yeah, but I was living in Galway. So two nights a week, I drove from Galway to, to Tullow. Um, got in a friend of mine, a fellow called David Mahan. He covered for me when there was a match that clashed, but they played Sundays and we we normally play Friday night or Saturday. So generally I was able to go to all the games. And yeah. uh, so I started that, I started at 23 and then, um, then, I, then I couldn't really commit to it. I took a break from it for a couple of years. Then at 27, I coached. Newbridge, which would be the kind of the old boys club of the school. So there'd be a lot of guys I went to school with. And then I joined, um, then I coached Coomine, which would be another junior club. So by the time I'd finished coaching, playing in Leinster and retired, I'd had seven or eight years of, of coaching clubs and, and success. So like we all, all the clubs got promoted. Um, the seconds always won their league. So we kind of created a really good squad ethic and uh, massive numbers of training. And uh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, it's and it's interesting there. You even mentioned your your under fourteen coach. Uh, yeah. that, that that even even he was an influential character in 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 your in your playing or, or and going on to your coaching. Yeah, what was it? What was it like? I, I'm fascinated with and you always hear this in sports yeah. where people reference coaches that were you you might feel if you're an under fourteen coach. What what influence are you having on a Bernard Jackman? You know, yeah. twenty years later, but you're still referencing this person as somebody who influenced you in in, in that journey. Yeah, do you know what he did, Mike? And I don't think he ever knew what he was doing, but and it's very common and topical at the moment, is he was a great storyteller. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, we basically were a very good team. We were stacked. So we'd won, we'd won every game for about two years. And I used to remember like on, on summer nights, we'd, we'd train really hard and, and we'd prep, and he'd just sit us all down in a huddle and he'd talk around kind of, um, you know, underdog stories and how hot favourites got caught. And, and just, like, listen, he told loads of stories, but... I remember that was the big thing about the need to always, always go out and perform and always treat every every opponent with the utmost respect. And you know, it's something that I would would be keen to to use now is 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 
is getting your message through telling a story or using teaming and things like that. So he did it. And then look, at it, he wouldn't have been an academic at all. Um, mm. It was just natural to him and how he loves sports. So he loved all sport. He loves horse racing. He loved, you know, hurling. He loved soccer. So he was always bringing examples from, uh, from other sports mm. in terms of trying to help us help deliver a message. And uh, yeah, so he was, and I, and I remember writing to him when I made, when I played for Ireland and, and uh, telling him how, how much he meant to me as a, as a coach and yeah. I his wife or his wife and my mum later on she said that like that meant a lot to him because look mm. you're under 14 coach you don't get that you're not appreciated you know and you're, no. you're never a um, was it a, never an, very rarely an expert in your own parish or, or whatever yeah. so like I couldn't understand how he he wasn't you know one of these coaches who were going around you know on the, on the circuit and, and bringing teams on from other counties he never really strayed from from doing the underage stuff and yeah. uh, look at uh, I, I think the the, the gift you have when you're a coach or the opportunity you have when you're coaches is uh, is really important. And we don't sometimes, we get caught up in the technical, tactical side of it, and that's really important. But we actually can, you know, for a lot of people who are a point of, a point of contact or a point of reference or, or hopefully a role model for them. And uh, it's important to know that. Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. Like there was, there was a, there's a, a man in our, in my own club in Cairns, and he's, he's not coaching anymore, but he must have coached for, I don't know how many, how many years. He, he never strayed from the under eights, under tens, or under twelves. He never wanted to take the senior team. He never wanted to, to go on. And, and it's incredible. And, and, and it's great to hear those stories about, you know, like even you writing the letter to, to him after you made, played for Ireland. Like that, that stuff is worth more than, than winning any championship with a, with a senior team down the line. You know, it's, it's powerful stuff. Yeah, well, for those, for those type of people, they, they do, I think they do take um, a lot from that because as I said, they're not people who are, who have 20,000 followers on, on Facebook or, or, yeah. or influencers, you know, they very rarely yeah. get told. They very get, they very rarely get appreciated. And, I, and, and that's the, that's the problem with the modern world to a certain extent that we don't often stop and go like, who helped me, who helped get me there. So like, I know there's like, you know, that, that guy I had in school, Paddy Butler, Brent Pope, I probably don't tell them enough. Well, Paddy mm. just passed away, but I don't tell them enough how much I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a powerful message, to be fair. And and how did those, I suppose, all those influences, as well as your own playing and stuff, kind of shape your own philosophy on coaching? Would it, would it, you know, was it something more, more because of the way you played or the, the way you were coached when you were playing, and your own ideas in the game? How did they kind of come together? Look, and I think uh, it's something I learned a lot from. I think for me, so I, I think I've got really high levels of resilience. So. Um, I had a lot of setbacks, you know, I was dropped from Ireland, Ireland squads um, 11 times. Uh, and, you know, I, I would flip that and say, well, I got picked 10 times, you know, on the way back. So um, there was lots of times when I, I had that year where I had no contract. So for about seven or eight years, I was the only guy in Ireland who ever left the professional game, was out of it, got back in. Um, you know, in my Leinster career, twice I was told, oh, we're not going to keep you next year. And I managed to, to change their mind and end up, you know, being a key part throughout playing a role and getting them um, across the line in, in the European Cup. So I didn't mind kind of, um, sorry, I enjoyed probably challenges and, and really difficult conversations where you're told, look at uh, Bernard, you know, X, Y, and Z aren't good enough. If you don't fix that, um, you're you're not going to have a future, whatever. Mm. So I The challenge for me is, is that a lot of people don't perform better with that kind of yeah. um, management uh, and, and communication. So that's probably 
something I, I learned um, is that unless you have a group of players who are very, very mature, very resilient, very confident in their own ability, um, uh, very committed to the cause, they can't handle that. They won't handle that well. Like so, in Leinster, we handle that really well. I mean, um, Checker came in. You know, he drove us. He worked us like dogs, um, and you know, wouldn't let us relax for a second. But we were ready for it. We had the group who could who could handle that, and it got the best out of us. But that doesn't work for. I say that that's it's rarer that that works than um, that works. Or, or it can work with a group of really elite. Uh, individuals more more likely than a group of players who've had um, a lack of uh, who have a lack of self belief or have had a lot of rejection and and yeah. criticism and disappointment. So that's something that I can't like. What works for me won't work for for the majority. So um, I think now I'm more, I'm more mature and more switched into the whole whole environment and that and that need to to make sure we care for each other and look after each other and. And work with it differently in terms of focus on people's strengths, individual development plans, um, you know, good feedback, uh, but not feedback rather than, than criticism. Mm. You know? Yeah, there there is a difference, I suppose, but it's 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 still the, that I think I think players and and like yourself, no, not obviously in the same level or whatever, but uh, you know, you deal with as a, if you're playing sport at any kind of a level, you're dealing with setbacks. Uh, apart from the, the very few who are at the very very pinnacle of, of of their own ability, but everybody else is dealing with a lot of you know setbacks or rejections or getting dropped and all that stuff. And and I I, I think all that stuff absolutely shapes the way that you you coach and the way that you deal with people and uh, and how you interact. And and if you have to deliver bad news yourself or whatever it is, yeah. like that stuff is tough. Like that's the toughest part of the game. It's not enjoyable, but at least if you're doing it with, you know. I suppose with that empathy that, that you've gone through this stuff before and, and you know that it sucks, but but at least you can be honest and, and deliver it straight. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's huge. And um I think yeah, it's it's just getting that balance right and and knowing your player, knowing your coaching staff and team, um, and be able to, I suppose, tailor your communication um to try and push the right buttons uh, and and mm. not Stretch them, but not overstretch them. If you get me, I think yeah, you know, uh, very little, very, very rarely does a completely comfortable environment get you where you need to go. Particularly if you take a job that does need um, need to be changed up. Which let's be honest, most teams don't change manager or coach uh, when things are going well. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, does the does the need to change, but also does need to be able to implement that change at a, at, at the right at the right pace. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned there when you started out, I suppose to you know that maybe maybe the coaches and yourselves weren't ready for the switch from from amateurism to to the professional game. How how has the coaching changed now? We'll say from if you're looking back on that period to to what's being done now. Yeah, absolutely. There's a huge focus now on on educating everybody around um, you know the importance of a, a growth mindset, and importance of learning. You know, learning is a given, but it's uh, the competitive advantage you can have is how quickly you learn. And, and I just think that's, um, you know, I'd be lucky enough to be part of um, some groups in lockdown where, you know, really high level coaches are just obsessed about about learning, sharing, problem solving, probing, um, trying to take on information and learnings from other people's experience, what worked, what didn't work. So um, it's been fascinating. And, and uh, I think the really good practitioners are 
are able to sell that to the players as well. So it's all well and good, you know, the management team being obsessed about getting better. But yeah. if the if the players aren't um, obsessed, they don't see that that need to to take lessons from training, to take lessons from games, and um, you're not gonna you're not gonna achieve anything. And and you know, Dublin and obviously in, in football, I mean, obviously they have a lot of resource and all that stuff, but. Um, I think in terms of their mindset around getting better um, and understanding what wins games and understanding everybody's role, um, it's it's incredibly impressive. And then the other thing I think that we're very good at now, in, or sorry, the, co- the good coaches I know, and this isn't just rugby, I mean, uh, I've been lucky enough to, to dabble in other sports, but th- there's a real level of detail around roles and responsibilities. And, and mm-hmm. I was lucky enough, I... I spent a few days in Williams Formula One uh, factory as part of um, Leaders in Sports program. And, uh, you know, Williams are historically a, a very successful Formula One team. But over the last decade or whatever, they're, they're at the back of the grid. Um, but, uh, you know, from my experience of of going into high-performing teams, I would say that they're, they are a high-performing team. Just obviously they might not have the financial clout to to have the right engine or the right chassis at, at the top of the grid. But uh, effectively, you know, the, there was a lady hired um, to be the performance coach for the for the pit crew. And uh, the level of detail that, that she went into with each each member of that pit crew who's, whose job was to, to basically um, change the tyres and fill the car up at a, at a pit stop. And, um, you know, so the guy, the right, the right wing guy, you know, he needed more flexibility in his in his right hamstring than his left hamstring, etc. And they designed programs and they started Jeez. nutrition and hydration and sleep and all those things that we would say, yeah, that's going to be important for a 5K runner at the Olympics. Well, no, they actually implemented all that stuff to, you know, mechanics. And, yeah. uh, and but also every mechanic knew exactly what his, his or her role was, you know, what tools they needed to be able to execute that. And, and for me, it's a... You know, it's just an example, but like mm. the best management teams, everybody knows the parameters. Mm. And it's not that you want to stop that free spiritness or whatever, and you want to stop um, your SSC coach being able to have a word with the with the corner forward or whatever about about football. You know, obviously, that's the boss decides the kind of flexibility in that. You've got someone like Eddie Jones or or Joe Schmidt who'll be more look at I'm the rugby boss, um, and you know I'm the one who tells the players what they need to do. Or you've mm. got someone like Andy Farrell. There's more, you know, it's 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 a team effort. We can all help each other. And like there's lots of different ways to skin a cat. But the, part, the important thing is to know in what environment you're working under or what yeah. parameters you're working under. So um, I think that's really important. That's, uh, and that's something that I, I've seen done really well is that, and, and look, at, at the moment, support teams are big for, for elite teams. You know, it's not just... A selector, a coach, and a, and a manager anymore. There's a lot more people involved, and the better clarity we can give them across the board, I think, the more clarity the players have, and hopefully, then the, the better the performances. Yeah, um, that's that, yeah. A pit, a pit stop there. You're trying you're trying to get the carry in and out in about nine seconds, but that's it's amazing, isn't it? Like that that detail. Yeah, you got to get your right hammer a little bit more flexible than. Yes, yeah. honestly, so. we were we were blown away. First of all, we were blown away by the fact that. Williams basically advertised for this uh, head of performance for the pit crew. And I think they were more shocked by the fact that they were getting urine samples. They were Jesus. Uh, they were getting tested on, in their flexibility. You can imagine like an old fashioned 
um, pit crew. And in fairness, they actually, to be honest, they, not just Williams, but across the, that that sport, they got pit stops so quick. Mm. They actually had to put in a, a minimum level um, oh, yeah. uh, because it was getting dangerous. Uh, so it's like the the um, the four minute mile. You know, once um, once someone runs it, yeah, year uh, five or six runs. You know, yeah, yeah, for sure. Roger Bannister, our man. Yeah. Um, you were you were you mentioned there that you dabbled in other sports. You were we you were stuck with uh, you did a little bit with Cork and, and Wexford. For, yeah, for, yeah. So uh, basically, uh, so like where I'm from, I'm on the Wicklow Carla border, but I wouldn't be that far from Wexford either. And my uh, a lot of our clients or customers were, are in Wexford. So I spent a lot of time in Wexford as well. And uh, I don't know what the connection was. Um, Gordon Darcy must be busy because he's a Wexford man. But anyway, Jason, <laughs> Jason Ryan wanted to uh, get someone down from Leinster to speak about how we went from being, um, uh, as, as Neil Francis said, lady boys into being champions of Europe. And uh, so I basically, I, 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 I was into I'm into Gaelic football, um, and I said, "Yeah, I'd love to come down." So I went down to training one night, watched him train, then then gave a little bit of a talk um, and told our story, and uh, went down really well or whatever. Jason was enjoyed it, and and they asked me would I would I come back, and so I ended up coming back um, a few times. I ended up going to Crow Park with them, etc., and um, talking to them pre-match, uh, talking to them in the qualifiers at halftime because they were going bad against Galway. Uh, and we ended up winning and we ended up beating Galway in Galway, which for Wexford in football was like yeah. Galway are our big team. Um, we had a very good team and we had a very good culture. And I was only a, like I was only literally a tiny part of it, but um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, you know, like it was great. And then obviously I went to France, so I was completely out of football except I did a little bit with Down um, with uh, Jamesy uh, uh, a little bit with Down when I was home for a summer or summer holiday and then last year Ronan, Ronan McCarthy asked me to go down to work and uh, they got relegated actually so I went down to talk around um, you know dealing with that and, and and being able to bounce back because they got relegated to Division 3 so this is back now this is not last year they got relegated to Division 3 and yet they still had so much to play for. They had a monster mm-hmm. championship. They had, um, you know, the target of getting into the Super Ace. And, uh, you know, obviously, I don't know if you remember, but we actually got Kerry a decent game in that monster final. Um, and then we we went into Super Ace and we, we actually lost all three games. But we, we had moments in those games uh, well, yeah. where where there was there was definitely positives to take. And obviously, um, with COVID and things like that, I, I wasn't involved this year. But yeah, look at I, I love it. I love it. I love the... Um, I love the camaraderie and sense of identity. I think as Irish people, and this is something that I, I, I struggled with a little bit in Wales. In that, you know, um, you know, we know where we're from. We want, we, we, we know, it starts with playing for your parish and then play for your county, and then uh, obviously in, in Gaelic playing for your province isn't as big a deal because of the competition. But for in rugby, you know, you generally play for your local club or school, and then you try and play for your province. And uh, I, I love that about county teams, about the level of commitment and. and um, clear sense of identity and wanting mm. something for your people is is very is a very strong uh, driver yeah and and in not not i'm not asking you specifically about those setups or anything but how how did those kind of intercounty ga setups you know compare or contrast maybe with what you were used to in a rugby sense obviously they're not professional and, and they're, yeah. they're below that but just maybe commonalities between yeah, the two yeah look and i think um again for me in wexford and that's where i spend more time than i did in cork Sometimes it was actually 
and look at this is back. I'm sure it's changed a hell of a lot, but that was 2009, 2010, maybe. Um, the player it was nearly curbing their enthusiasm. Mm. That's you know, say 10 is a, is a maximum intensity session. Like, and I, I look, I understand because they're driving from wherever they're driving from to get to training. They're only maybe together two nights a week um, or three nights a week. They kind of want to get back in the car feeling they've actually like spent the yeah. thing. But there's actually, uh, you know, I was saying, well, hang on, you know, we have all week together, 48 weeks of the year. But we don't go balls out on a Monday. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like we'll do, we'll, we'll do loads of walk and talk. We'll do loads of walkthroughs. Um, you know, we have static sessions. We'll have clip blackboard sessions, whiteboard sessions, you know, and then we'll go on a, on a Tuesday for a 35 minute block because that's our, our training week. And then maybe we'll go fast block for 15 minutes on a, on a Thursday. And then we we'll do more clarity. Uh, and they like, and I just felt that they, they get in the car on a Thursday night. And if they hadn't like really had great intensity, they felt that they weren't getting better. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to say, well, look, yeah, absolutely. You know, intensity is really important, but there's learning, there's understanding, there's just tapering off the strategy that you can't get if you, if you go a million miles an hour. And, and, you know, another team I, I was with, um, and there was basically a bit of a, a standoff between the management and the players. Right. So the, the what standoff, sorry, sorry. Um, there's, <laughs> There's a confusion, basically, and uh, and the example was um, we're not implementing the kickout strategy that that's been designed, okay? And uh, feedback was from from players we're not really sure what that strategy is, okay? okay. Uh, so I spoke to the management, and the manager we've we've ever told them fucking. We've ever told them, we've told them, we've told them, we've told them. Uh, they know what it is, right? And I said, well, they don't know what it is, right? Um, and again, like, it's just a case of saying, well, look, at the most, and you know this, is that um, it's only, like, you're only coaching if, if it's understood, you know, realistically. It, and if you have to go back, you know, back three weeks or, or back three steps to restart again and go out in a different way, um, well then do that you know do that because the most important thing is that it, it's it's understood and implemented and, and also not just a general understanding it, the reality is at the at elite level uh, you know there's there's always going to be something that happens that will change the circumstances and then you have to kind of predict well how are we going to react to that or how does our system work when when they do this and, and it take a lot of talking understanding um, and to do it, and I understand you, you've got a limited time on the field and, um, you know, you want to get your running meters in, you want to have intensity, but I think that's something that we've got better at in, in my sport is actually kind of getting those learning blocks in the week. And I know we've got time, but um, I would say, you know, you need to make sure the players understand exactly what's expected of them rather than have it and, and and to get that feedback before you get knocked out of the championship or before you lose a big game you're way better off than just having it you know at the review meeting after you've lost a big game going oh we didn't really know what you meant you know mm, yeah so the, the tactical side of it's so all or the amount of time spent on 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 understanding the tactical approach to the game i suppose is is yeah would have been a, yeah a and also thing. like i mean the 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 different wrinkles so you know, it's it's easy to have. I suppose a kickout is a very simple example, whatever. But um, you know, 
what what happens if they do this? You know what I mean? And look at rugby's not perfect at it. I mean, there's been a few examples in the last few weeks. And I don't know if there's any rugby fans in this, but Connacht had a couple of of opportunities late in the game from a set piece opportunity. There was one against um, Munster where Munster had 13 players on the field. Connacht had 15, and they picked the wrong shot selection. And again, you know, afterwards the coaches like they didn't throw the players on the post, but he said, look at you know, we had to we had to play in our locker there for that to execute that. Um, but for whatever reason, there was a lack of understanding. And in fairness, they went away and they had one the following week, actually, 15 against 14, the same position, and they scored off it. So they had to learn from it. But it's trying to predict, it's trying to predict what could happen. And do our do our, our game decision makers understand that and can we react to that in the moment? Hmm. And and I suppose in Gaelic football and a lot of invasion games that the idea of that you know games based approach or the games based coaching where where we are trying to replicate that that situation that you talk about Connacht and Munster where we are putting you in that position a couple of times in training and uh, I wonder is that if you're talking about maybe thirty five minutes on a Tuesday and fifteen or twenty minutes a half an hour next day on a Thursday are are rugby players in that position enough to make those those decisions on the fly themselves or or is it very much becoming a little bit programmed, or no? Would you look that? at that. Look, we would be using the games based approach. Sorry, I meant, I meant that if that forty minutes on Tuesday might be like really kind of high intensity. You might have contact. Okay. Your session, the fifteen minutes on a, on a on a Thursday might be only fifteen minutes of forty five or of sixty, where gotcha. it's it's high speed. Um, okay. And different clubs do it different ways. But um, no, look, I think the difference in our game, your game is a lot more fluid. So we have. Mm. We have natural pauses for set piece, um, yeah. which gives you a chance to uh, to basically launch something that's pre-programmed. And the idea of that is to is to get you into a situation where you, you're sticking to your system, but there is more fluidity. Mm. Um, and I look at I think that we have, the difference we have is that we have time to do hot review. Well, you have time to do hot reviews, but we have time to to you know at the end of the session we're training during daylight, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we have TV on the side of the pitch. Um, we can go back into the office to to review it that afternoon before fellas go home. Whereas you lads are, you know, lads are tearing to get their their post match food or post training food, get in their cars, get home because sleep you got to weigh a balance up. You know, is it is it better to keep them there till twelve o'clock at night to review mm -hmm. it? Is it better to have them in their bed uh, at half ten? You know, there's so many yeah. different um, advantages that pro sport have, but. We would do a lot of game-based training, and Leinster would be very game-based uh, training approach. Um, but they still have time to to put the detail into those those set piece type um, scenarios. Yeah. yeah, you have that flexibility of the time, yeah. like you said. Like guys are guys are grabbing their grub now, getting into the cars, and they're and they're gone before some fellas yeah. get off the pitch. You know, it's it's that's the difference, I suppose. Um, but for underage coaches, maybe listen to this part. If there was a message or a couple of key things that. Um, you know that they could that they could take from that maybe to to improve their own their own delivery of of kids like you're talking about in the 14s or 15, 16s, whatever it might be. Yeah, uh, look, I think um, we need to as coaches, no matter what generation we are or came from, is to understand what they're into. Uh, so, and I haven't coached, um, I haven't coached, I'm coaching a group of under 18, so I'm coaching uh, a senior cycle in school. Um, and I'm using teaming with them, um, which I, I find is really, it really gets their focus and, and I can relay messages through that. So, for example, last year, um, we used the Spartans, you know, uh, so obviously 
it's it's not current and modern, but um, there was a lot of stories we could use from the Spartans that helped create that that unity. And uh, and this year I'm using uh, Formula One actually, ironically, which is um, uh, based on uh, Drive to Survive, which is a season on Netflix. Um, yeah. So I basically got them all to watch it, and we use basically Formula One. So, for example, if we want to talk around um, rivalry, you know, we'll look at uh, maybe McLaren against Williams, and I'll get a player to do a bit of research on that and, and present to the group. We want to talk around. Uh, so basically, the the team is the car, and all our job is to make the car go faster. Uh, but yet, the drivers are individuals, and the players are all individuals. And we all want them to have their own unique way of driving the car. So there's lots of little things that that. I know a lot of coaches are 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 using um, gamification, um, and there's lots of research online for, uh, on that. So basically, a lot of the kids now are into PlayStation, Xboxes, uh, power ups, level ups, all that stuff, mm-hmm. and trying to bring that into your training. And it sounds daunting, but like, you know, I I, I have a presentation on it if anyone needs it because um, I'm not an expert on it. But I got in a guy to speak to our coaching group, who is, and uh, it was fascinating. And it wasn't that hard. It was just a case. Mm-hmm of actually, you know, learning from this this presentation. And I think if the players see that you are trying to reach out to them or trying to create a learning style that's exciting or interesting to them, you're going to get more buy-in. And, and, look, and look, I think we can keep, we can over, we can overcomplicate things at times. Um, if you get buy-in across a group, you're already halfway there. You know, you're already halfway there. So I would say, have a look and see about your group and what could get them motivated, what could get them going, what could connect, connect or create connections. And that'll, that'll create buy-in. And then from there, you start to layer everything else. Yeah. And that, that gamification, <clears throat> I, excuse me, I, I, I saw that and it's, it's a fascinating thing and it's very, it's very simple. It's not overly complicated, no. but the whole, the whole idea is to try and try and make, going out and kicking the ball or catching the ball or, or throwing a rugby ball to make it as, as attractive as, as kids sitting down playing Fortnite or, or playing yeah. Call of Duty or whatever it is. And, and if we could if we could get to that level, obviously, and, and then you're developing that kind of motivation that they want to go and do that themselves and they want to practice and get better, that's obviously the the, the, the beauty of it. And, and just, look, to be honest, sorry, just on that, on that like, and I haven't used it extensively, but I'm interested in it. But the guy who presented on it is a, an academy coach in a professional club in in England. So the guys he's coaching and he's had great success with, I mean, he swears by it. um, But like, they're all elite. They're all, you know, guys who are being, being steered towards being professional. So if they can, if they, you know, you often we think, Oh, look at the guys who are going to be professional. They'll do anything for you. Mm -hmm. Um, And he, and they would, but he's more about making it more enjoyable for them, making it more interesting. So I I think it's definitely something, an area that's worth looking at. I mean, look at the team be a different trigger point and and would you just maybe very briefly you mentioned team in there uh, just for people maybe that aren't familiar just with with what that concept is or what that is would you would you just be able to tell people what, yeah, what so that's basically, about basically um it's actually been used a lot more than we maybe know so effectively it's it's either teaming a part of a season so you might team your preseason right for whatever or you might team the whole season so probably the best exponent of it in in rugby is a guy called Scott Robertson, um, who's the coach of the Crusaders. So he effectively, five or six years ago, decided to use the Muhammad Ali team for the season, okay? So um, a lot of their calls were related to boxing. So there was hook, jab, 
So he based what you're trying to do is you set up with a with a general concept, and he he used Muhammad Ali, and it was um there was loads of commonalities between Muhammad Ali and the Crusaders, right? So the Crusaders had won hadn't won, I can't remember the exact details, but they hadn't won say for seven years, and it was seven years after Ali originally lost his title, went to prison, came back. Um, his final, his big fight was the Rumble in the Jungle. They played the, the final of the Super Rugby in Johannesburg, you know, so right. he was able to, we're going to Africa, we're going to the Jungle, blah, blah, yeah. um, So what he did was, every week on a Monday, they would have a different team for that opponent, right? Now, it's a shorter season, maybe I think 14 or, or 15 games, and then they would interlink that with, you know, clips of, of Ali, um, uh, and then clips of of their opponents or themselves, and it was just overlaying. And the players used to basically, you know, uh, look forward to this video. And it's only a video, right? But it wasn't that. It was always this message of of Ali. Then the year after, they went into they they used Kings, right? Because he, you know, he, uh, Kings reign, right? Because they were already champions. So looked into all these different Kings. Um, and actual fact, when I think back to uh, to Leinster in 2008 and nine, Michael Checker was using it, but we didn't know it. He didn't come into us and say, lads, we're using teaming this year. Yeah. He actually, in our videos, and, and he started putting in clips of Tour de France and um, the whole, the challenge, the climbs, etc. And it was only when actually a guy, um, our vi- we have a group, uh, WhatsApp group from the 2019, and uh, he was going through his hard drive about a month ago and he actually found these motivational videos and he put them back up. And I, I now, because I've, I've learned a bit about it, realized mm. that teaming, it, it, he was doing it subconsciously to us. Yeah. Um, so Liverpool last year used the All Blacks. So they nice. used the All Blacks uh, as their team. So Jurgen Klopp would regularly speak about, about the All Blacks. So that's kind of, um, that's the gist of it. Golden State Warriors use a different one every year in basketball. Um, but I have found that, uh, I have found it's a brilliant way of, of engaging with people and subliminally get messages across through a different, um, a different sport or or area. Yeah, and it's kind of like that storytelling, like you like you mentioned yeah. before. It's it's another way of 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 maybe putting that story out there. And like it, it sounds, Bernard, just from listening to you, like that that's like you you see that as a as a key role of any coach really is is painting that picture, or giving them the vision, and 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 telling the story around that to give them the belief in in themselves to go and achieve whatever they're looking for. Yeah, so exactly. So like if you if you've won four in a bounce, right, and you're going into a, a potential um I suppose booby trap, a team that maybe everyone expects you to, to beat, you know, you may find something from your team that's around complacency, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just a different way of, of of getting that message across. And it's not just you're you're putting on a video and you're you know, you're you're using a video and your own ability to uh to tell a story. And look, I'll give you an example so um of, of storytelling. Um so Sir Alex Ferguson is obviously a, a big uh, a big hero of mine, a Man United fan. And I did a thesis. I went back to college in 2010 before I went to France and did a thesis in um or said a master's in sports and exercise management. And I did a thesis on the correlation between high performance behaviors and sport and business, right? So I was like, okay, well, I, I went through a, a change of culture in Leinster. So I, I have and a change of culture in Ireland as well. So I, I have those experiences, but it's very rugby specific. I'd love to know. I'd love to know why you know Toyota are, are, are successful for for eighty years. I'd love to know why Dyson have been able to break into the um, into the the Hoover and, and hair 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 dryer industry. I'd love to know why Rolex is successful. So I basically went on a road trip, and um, 
I went to Dyson, I went to Toyota in Japan, I went to um, Rolex in Switzerland, I went to Wigan Warriors, who were the best rugby league team. I went to IMG Academy in Florida. I went to Sydney Swans, who just won the AFL. Um, I went to the Canterbury Crusaders. So I went and, and just basically observed and talked to people. But anyway, I went to Man United for four days. And uh, at the end of the week, so I went on a Tuesday. And on a Friday, I'd scheduled a 20-minute meeting with Sir Alex. And um, United were still very good and dominant, right? So uh, it was near the end of Sir Alex's time. And... Um, I was I'd access all the areas. So I was in the physio room, canteen, videos. Really? It was phenomenal. And and the team trained with like unbelievable level of it, it really good intensity, but high levels of accountability. Right. So like you pushed each other and they were hardening each other if, if a pass was, you know, was out of place, etc. And that was really impressive. And yes, they'd already like they'd already achieved so much. So I asked Sir Alex in my meeting, I said, Oh, how do you motivate these guys? Like they've got millions in the bank, they've loads of trophies, blah, 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 blah. And he said, I tell the same story every year. Um, and I have done since I joined United. So he goes, I grew up in a very rough part of Glasgow. Um, there was an 80% chance if you go up in my streets, you were going to work in the shipyards. His father was a docker. Um, in actual fact, where he grew up has been demolished now. It was tenement houses. And he said, when he was about 15, his dad came home from work one day. And he was sitting down at the table with his, with his brothers and sisters. And his dad said, boys, uh, I was coming home from work today. I saw a building site. And I went in. I saw three men building a wall. I said to the first guy, I said, what do you do? And he goes, I'm a bricklayer. He said to the second guy, what do you do? And he goes, I earn 40 pound a week. I said to the third guy, what do you do? And he said, I'm building a building that in 60 years time, my son can bring his son. And he said, in this dressing room or in this meeting room, there's all these are professional footballers. Okay. Some of you earn 5,000 a week. Some of you earn 15,000 a week. But some of you in 60 years time will be able to bring your grandson or granddaughter and say your grandfather was in Man United from 90, 92 for those, that generation 92, 2010. And when he was here, we created an unbelievable level of, of consistency. And he said, he was very lucky. He said, the Roy Keynes, Dennis Irwins, the Eric Cantonas, the Yapstams, the, until obviously relationship broke. But more importantly, the Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Nicky Boyd, Paul Scholes, class of 92, they took that to heart. And if you think of it now, okay, they're on a bit of a research the last few months, but if Dennis Irwin goes to Old Trafford in two years' time when there's 82,000 people there and his face comes up on the big screen, what are my United fans going to think when they think of him? I yeah. love it. Uh, and, and again, you have footballers playing for Leash. Some of them are happy to be playing county. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and, but the really good ones, you know, the, the Ross Mullins, et cetera, like they're going to look back on their career uh, with absolute pride and fondness. And, and and they'll be talked about, you know, they'll be talked about in 20 years' time as, as being as being unbelievable servants to each. Yeah. Uh Bernard, you've been very generous with your time, man. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep you long more, but I, I just you mentioned the word there and I just wanted to get your your own thoughts on what does culture mean to you in, in terms of uh, of that that rugby setting and, and the groups that you've worked with. It's used so often now, and it's it can be quite flaky and hard yeah. uh, hard to really measure. Um, uh, I think you only really know how good it is when it's tested. So when you hit dark times and tough times, in terms of how much everybody's willing to put their shoulder to the wheel and, and will they stick together. Um, and yeah, but yet as a manager, or a leader, a coach, you have to put so much time into trying to create that. And 
you know, the ideal scenario is you never hit that tough spot and you just always yeah. always swimming with the with the current. But the reality is um that's that's rare in elite sport, you know. There's usually a, a blip and a and a disappointment that you have to, you know, really come together on. So um it's everyone talks about behavior. I think it's doing it's be it's having such a connect for individuals to have such a a, a tight connection to the mission um that they'll do things when no one's looking the right things when no one's looking that's the, that's the true sign and mm. uh, um and they'll step up when the pressure comes on rather than than look for an exit so um it's very difficult to it's very difficult to measure it but look when you have it right it's it's when you're in a when you're in a good culture it's it's way more enjoyable to be working and living in that environment than when you're in a, a negative one you know and and I look at I was in a couple of negative ones um I was in a place and when I was in France we taught we had a great culture we we we, we spent a lot of time on um doing social activities together yeah. etc and we had an issue we had money problems with, as a club we asked players to take a 10% pay cut and everybody went completely different directions uh, and we lost we lost all sense of what our our purpose was uh but we only found out when 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 we we changed one of the one of the factors in in terms of what we um you know what players were getting paid and and, and that I understand the professionals all that stuff but uh, for me I was very disappointed with how as a group we we let we didn't we didn't handle it as well as as we should have and but that's look at you as I said to you I, I feel that sometimes winning can everyone thinks great teams have a great culture winning teams have a great culture but maybe they just have more talent. Um, and you only find out what it is is when they when they hit a, a stumbling block. Um, you know, let's presume that a lot of people on this are coaches. Um, there's a guy, uh, Wayne Smith's probably the best rugby coach in the world. He coached the All Blacks, but he, he picks and chooses now where he works because he wants to get a better balance. But he he says performance is equal to beha- our capabilities multiplied by behaviors, right? So I think if we're coaching a team, all right, Obviously, we got to look after. Can we improve their capabilities, and um, what's their behaviors like? And we have to try and influence both of those, right? But if you have a team who, for whatever reason, at this moment in time, don't have the capabilities that your opponents have, right? Your behaviors can be absolutely brilliant, right? You can be sweeping the sheds, you can do whatever you want, right? But doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get the the performance. Sorry, you'll get the performance levels that you're capable of. Right, but that mightn't give you the results at the end of the day mm-hmm. um, that you're expected to get, or you want to get yourself for your own uh, self self worth and and, and um, benefit. So it's about being able to try, to try and take a little bit of a cold look at it and go, okay, well, you know, I don't have an experienced team at the moment. I don't have you know four forwards who can can score uh, freely, etc. I need to be working on trying to develop that, um, and also I need to you know make sure the behaviors are really good. But until you get to two of them um, at a at a high level, you shouldn't. You know, don't be hard on yourself if you don't if you don't win every game. You know, there's 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 limiting factors. We all, everybody gets obsessed about the culture side of it, and but that's only half of what determines whether you win elite sport. You know, if you don't have the capability, and I'm not saying capability is obviously game plan, etc. And there's there's parts we control in that, but the reality is if you don't have the raw talent. Um, or the experience or whatever is important for your sport um, and you're playing at elite level, 
you won't win every week, you know, and that's uh, that's something that doesn't get told, you know, when you listen into the successful coaches. Um, they don't talk about it often enough. And if someone tells you it's not true, well, why does Pep Guardiola spend 200 million? You know, why does Jose Mourinho, who's the greatest coach of all time, need to spend? Because they, they buy talent. They buy yeah. talent because talent is a shortcut. Buying talent is a shortcut to success. Yeah, for sure. Capabilities, behavior. Yeah, that's that's a nice way to it's a nice way to put it. And it's sure it's completely true. Yeah, you can. Yeah. No, you can. You can still max out with your own capabilities and the people that you have available, and and you can mm. max out with their behaviors, and you can you know get them doing everything that they can possibly do to 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 give them every chance. But but then you're performing. Yeah, then you're performing. Yeah, but you might not. Have, you might not have uh, the, the the champion. You might not have the All Ireland in your in yeah your home. Do you yeah. know what I mean? That and, and, and okay, the challenge is to is to get to that maximum level of performance. That's our job. Mm. But I see a lot of coaches get very frustrated, lose lose belief in their own methods because they don't have they don't have silverware at the end mm. of the season. But the reality is, if you look at what you have, um, and uh, if you don't have that max ability that your capabilities and your behaviours should get you that trophy, well, then you haven't really failed, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and and again, I, I actually I was speaking about this with Jason last week as well, and it, it's a it's a tough sell for people, not a coaches. No, elite sport, it is all about your 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 victories and your titles and your your, your silverware, but everywhere else. Like that's the worst metric we can possibly have is is winning titles or or, or or getting trophies. It is about trying to max out your group and 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 make sure that they're enjoying it first of all, and and that you're you're going from there, I suppose, really, isn't it? But yeah, uh, it's a tough sell for a lot of people. It uh, is. Bernard, again, man, I I just want to thank you a lot for your time. I, I really appreciate. It. I know it's a very very busy week for you, as I, as I mentioned earlier. And um, again, maybe for for all of you listening, uh, there is a link below. And and uh, again, if we could see our way to donate any couple of euros to Temple Street Children's Hospital again like I said everything is going to, to them and, and uh, you know if there is something there it would be really appreciated by everybody so Bernard again thanks a million for your time and enjoy yeah. this weekend best of luck with Leash and uh, oh yeah, I'll be following your progress uh, with interest alright yeah, thanks Bernard cheers, cheers.